Hi, I'm Kelvin. And I'm Robin. And welcome to the final episode of Season 10 of Fly on the Wall. I have to say my favorite part of this season has been all the fly puns we've incorporated. 100%. So before we dive into the interview with Rebecca Piercy this week, make sure you follow us on social media at flyonthewallpod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We also love hearing from you, so feel free to send a message to flyonthewall at georgetown.edu. Also, we're so excited to have Rebecca Piercy as our last guest of the pod this season. Rebecca is currently the vice president of Bryson Gillette, a strategic and public communications firm that oversees campaigns on the national, state, and local levels. Before she joined her current firm, Rebecca was the political director and senior advisor of Elizabeth Warren's 2020 presidential primary campaign. Isn't that quite a resume, Robin? It is, and that's not all. Having served on campaigns on all levels throughout her career, as well as even some experience internationally, we're excited to have you in behind the curtain of Rebecca's career. So without further ado, let's dive right into the conversation. Hello, Rebecca Piercy. Welcome to the pod. Great to see you. Thanks for coming to talk to us, especially so close to the end of the semester. Happy to be here. Happy to do it. Yeah, it's really awesome. So let's get right into the questions. Yeah, so um, doing some research into your background, we see that you did really incredible work in South Africa. So we just want to get to the very start of your career. So take us all the way back there um, as a country director for the Clinton Health Access Initiative. First, why South Africa and what piqued your interest in public health? This is a very interesting question and it's one I haven't gotten on campus yet, so I appreciate it very much, Robin. Um, I, I was looking for a break from politics. It was 2010, I'd been doing this for about 10 years, the political work for about 10 years and was really just looking for a change. The job in, its, in and of itself was very much campaign-like in the work that we did, which was, um, run mini campaigns all throughout the country to help figure out how to get more South Africans tested for HIV. And so that is what drew me to it, was applying everything that I'd learned in campaigns over the last 10 years to a new challenge that just happened to be in public health. And South Africa was one of the uh, most HIV and AIDS ravaged countries in Africa but also ran a big program through Clinton Health Access Initiative, the Clinton Foundation, and then all of the partners from PEPFAR, the NGOs, the other organizations that were there to try and get testing and then treatments under control. And so the year that I was there, our goal was to administer about 15 million tests, which was ultimately successful. And we did that by making some of the testing compulsory in places like schools. So if you broke your arm and you went to the doctor, you also got an HIV test just to get it normalized and destigmatized from the like bad, scary HIV test and ultimate, you know, status, right? All the way to, you know, uh, some of these campaigns also focused on truckers or sex workers or farmers or very rural villages where we'd go do a pop-up. And so it just normalized a lot of the things that we were doing to try and help them understand that it was a very normal thing to just get a test and figure out your status. And then other organizations would come in and talk to them about treatment. Okay, that's great to hear. Uh, I want to go back a little bit. So you mentioned your campaign work before South Africa. So we just wanted to ask, what was it like and what made you want to make such a massive shift, I guess? Well, Democrats were not winning, guys. (laughs) 
and it was hard. So, yeah. <laughs> and I think that there is an element of burnout that that we've probably all talked about throughout our discussion groups as fellows this cycle or this semester. And, and it's something that I think campaign operatives talk about a lot too. It's a really rigorous um, lifestyle, one where you move around a lot and you don't get a lot of time to um, spend with your family or in relationships and you're, you're working, you know, 12 to 18 hours a day. And so making a change like that was ultimately just a, a break. I just needed a break. And I think going to South Africa for a year is definitely a very different type of break than I think a lot of other operatives make. But it also allowed me to come back to the U.S. reinvigorated, but also with just a different perspective on what electoral politics should feel like. It's not life and death. And these are decisions that are very important to campaigns and to candidates, but it is not, it is not saving lives for the most part, right? And it is not helping people figure out if they can live with a disease like HIV or not. It is like, can you go knock on this door? No, great, next, who can I talk to about knocking on this door? And so the perspective of living in a different country in a different industry just for a year, I think really allowed me to elevate my my perspective on, on campaigns, but also helped me think through my next career moves in a very different way too. Yeah, so you alluded to this in your answer, but how did your work with the Clinton Health Access Initiative really inform your work when you came back to the U.S. and got involved in campaigns again? Oh, I took a lot more risks. I took a lot more risks. I think the race I went to directly following my time in South Africa was a race in Indiana where I managed a gubernatorial race, and my candidate was down by, I think, 27 when I arrived. So... It was a race where we knew we had to take some very calculated risks in order to make it a real race. And we, we ended up running against Mike Pence at the time, um, who ultimately won the race. But we actually turned that race into a, a real thing that Mike Pence had to pay attention to and Republicans had to pay attention to. Ended up losing only by three, which, you know, yes, it's a loss and Democrats were still not doing well when I got home to America. But it is something that I think... The time in South Africa just allowed me to think about things in a much broader way than I had before I left. When you talk about your experience with the race, you mentioned that uh, it was not necessarily a win. Well, it wasn't a win. So We did not win. He did yeah. not win. <laughs> he did not win. No. But, uh, that's still interesting, though. When it comes to campaigning, people are always excited to talk about winning. But you can learn a lot from losing as well, and I'm sure you can agree with this as a campaigner for so long. What lessons have you learned from working on campaigns that did not end up winning the election? Well, I've worked on a lot of campaigns that haven't won. And I actually enjoy talking about my losses more than my wins. And it's not because I don't enjoy the work that I did for winning campaigns, but I think I always draw bigger lessons from the ones I've lost just because it campaigns end and it allows you the time to sit and psychoanalyze every move you made. You get to look at the data and say, I wish we would have, or I wish we should, could have, or I wish we could have afforded. And so for me, the, the lessons that I learned on the losing campaigns are strategic ones, right? Where I think you need to, at least in campaigns I, I run or am part of, I like to make sure that we're going everywhere, right? Like we don't need to stick to the 10 Democratic base counties in Ohio anymore. We need to go everywhere in Ohio and talk to Democrats and figure out how to lose by less. 
And it's not about winning those counties. It's about finding people in those areas that identify with your candidate or your message so you're able to get them out to vote. And maybe you get a win, maybe you don't, but you're also engaging people in a different way that may help their bench down the road, right? Um, Another thing is, you know, your relationships are really everything. And I think without making the relationships on a lot of the campaigns that I've lost, I wouldn't be where I am now. And a great example of that is the Gephardt for President campaign. Also did not win. And I was Gephardt 2003 and 2004. Mm -hmm. Um, The president of the firm I work at, Bryson Gillette, is a Gephardt alum. There are about maybe 10 or 12 of us who are still at very high levels of politics. And it's a lot of fun to think back to what we were when we were 23 and 24 and we were field organizers and we drank a lot of beer and we were very poor and slept on air mattresses and now we are running consulting firms running massive organizations here in dc are making ads we're running campaigns it's a lot of fun to look back on those times and think if only we would have known that we would actually be successful at something down the road i don't know that we would have done anything different on gephardt but it is just fun to think think back at what it was. Yeah, definitely. So um, on the theme of thinking back, uh, you've worked on campaigns on all different levels, whether it was local or national or whether it was, uh, you know, whether it was uh, congressional or presidential. So uh, how does the region and scale of a campaign impact strategy? Ooh, good question. So I think there, there are multiple ways here, right? And so I, I think it's... All of the above. It's You want to look at the region, and you want to look at the race, and you want to look at the budget, and the candidate, and the opponent, and both of their records, and devise a strategy. And I think my, at this point, I don't think that there's a state that I couldn't go work in or couldn't advise in just because I have 20 plus years of experience doing it. I think when you're starting out or younger, it's easier to go into a state where you're from, where you might have a base of knowledge about what people there are like or people that they might think are good validators or this is a great candidate because they did X, Y, and Z in this community. For me, now I look at it in a much more tactical sense, which is like, Robin, you are great. You are from, where are you from, Robin? North Carolina. You are from North Carolina. Let's go run for Congress, right? Like you fit right in. I can figure this out. You've done awesome things here at GU. Like, let's go do this. But I think for a younger operative, it's tougher to make those kinds of connections in a very immediate way, which is fine because, you know, I got my start in Oregon. That's where I grew up. And it was very easy for me to go back and run my home state senator's race because I could live at home. I knew him. I knew his wife. I knew his kids. I knew all the people that we were trying to get money from or volunteer shifts from. And it just makes it easier to go start yourself out that way. You mentioned that you like to go everywhere. You mentioned it like a couple minutes ago. Yep. You also mentioned that you feel like you could win a campaign like really anywhere they put you. So I guess my question from there is, how do you tailor your messages to very different audiences? Good question. Um, I think it, it actually goes back to Robin's question about how do you tailor it by region or scale? And it's all of the same elements, right? It is candidate, it is money and budget, it is any polling you might have or any just sense of what's going on in the community. 
that you might want to message on. Like if my candidate doesn't want to talk about taxes or tax cuts, that's definitely not something we're going to talk about, no matter if it does poll well, right? Like you can't force these square pegs into round holes and think that it's going to work. And so I think that when I'm looking for candidates, I'm, I'm looking for good cultural fits, but I'm also good, looking for good message fits to help figure out like, what's the easiest path to victory here? Because it's hard enough, right? It's hard enough to run a campaign, particularly if they have like a family and a job and hopefully, you know, I have a job too. <laughs> like it's, it's hard enough on its own to try and get somebody over the finish line. I think if it's a natural fit, it just makes it so much easier. Yeah, definitely. So our next question, you know, as we all know, in Washington, there is never a day off. But once one election's over, we're always thinking about the next. And the next one is, at this point, less than a year away, which is kind of scary. So how should the Democrats strategize for the 2022 <laughs> campaign cycle? We're sorry. We have to ask. We cannot have Rebecca Piercy here and not ask. This is amazing. Great question. Um Look, I think you're already seeing some of the Democrats strategize on how we're looking at 2022. And I think the answer should be running on the deliverables as provided by the Biden White House. And that is everything that is in Build Back Better, whether that is a big tax cut for working moms or a medium-sized tax cut for working moms. I think it's really incumbent on candidates across the country to start talking about what the Biden White House and a Democratic Senate and Congress has been able to deliver. I also think that when governors are running, they should be talking about how they were supportive of this package as well and talk about how Democrats are taking back billions of dollars into these communities and how it will impact people in their everyday lives, not just it is a X amount dollar thing. It is new roads. It is working mom child care, right? It is investment in schools. It is tax cuts for seniors. And just breaking it down to that level is something I think Democrats should do, hope will do. Maybe I'm advising will do. Um, but yeah, hard-hitting question. I'm ready for the rapid fire, like fun stuff, guys. <laughs> Don't worry, we do have a lightning round at the end. And hopefully any Democrats running for election or listening in on this podcast and gleaning any wisdom you're delivering to us. We are, that was a very detailed answer. Yes. Thank you. But let's flip it a bit. You okay. mentioned how the Biden administration and how their package is affecting the people running in the midterms, but let's reverse it. How are midterms going to affect the future of the Biden administration after? Oh, I, I think in a pretty major way, honestly. And I think that the makeup of whatever the House or Senate will be will have a major impact on what he's able to get done in 2023 and 2024, which has an impact on re-election, obviously. And so this is not, it's not like a quid pro quo, right? But like, I think that it would be wise if Democrats wanted to run on the Biden agenda and talk about how they have helped deliver all of these things back to the American people they're also going to get reelected and then we keep the house we keep the senate we still have president biden and we figure it out for 2023 and 2024 yeah definitely so next question is also um on the same topic of campaigning um so as a democratic strategist strategist you are intimately familiar with the many narratives surrounding the party 
And one of, the, one of the most pervasive is that the democratic field is divided against itself, such as progressive versus moderate, especially on very hot button issues. Is this an accurate story? And if so, how can the party overcome this uh, challenge? I don't know that I, I think that that's a, an accurate portrayal. Mm-hmm. I do think that Democrats are better at being inclusive, right? It is a big tent party. And I think we said that a long time ago. Terry McAuliffe sent it, said it a long time ago when he was DNC chair, but it's true. And the party includes people like AOC, and it also includes people like Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin. For better or for worse, whatever your feelings are on all of these people, it spans the spectrum. And I think the difference between us and the Republicans is, to me, they seem much more fractured, and we just don't talk about it in a real way, because you've got the Trump people, and then you've got the never Trump people. And they're still stuck in this Republican Party that can't seem to find its national footing. Are, are they Trump or are they not Trump? And that is like the decision that I think that party will need to start figuring out quickly ahead of the midterms, but certainly ahead of 2024 if Trump is going to be the nominee. Mm-hmm. On a much more personal note, you are a woman of color making waves in political spaces, yet sadly that is a rarity in today's day and age. How has this identity affected your career and how can we get more people like you breaking barriers in politics? So I, w- I won't say it hasn't had an impact. I think um, when I was younger, there was not anybody that looked like me sitting at the table where you actually get to make the decisions, right? And I remember very vividly coming to a training here in D.C. when I was running a U.S. Senate race. Like, this is not a small race. This is also not a long time ago. It was 2015 or 2016. And I get there, and as, a, as the campaign managers, we're all in the same room, and we're getting trained, and it's me and, like, 15 white guys in blue blazers and khakis. And I was pissed, right? I didn't know what to go do about it. You go, you go, you go to the training, then you go home and you run your race, Right. Um, and I don't know that there's actually an answer on what to do about it going forward. There are organizations that are trying to make sure that we get more people of color and people from marginalized communities, LGBTQ managers, back into this workflow and sort of into this pipeline. An organization where I am a team leader is called Blue Leadership Collaborative, And we do a lot of management coaching for campaign managers. So we had 16 campaign managers on the Virginia House of Delegates races who are now in this pipeline and ready to go manage congressional races, which is great. And they all, by and large, managed budgets of roughly a million dollars. And it's, you know, a great program that I hope will be around for a long time. But I also hope that we don't need it forever because people will be out there managing races and they'll have you know, different backgrounds, they have a different cultural competency set than a lot of the managers that were like white guys 10 or 15 years ago. So that, that's, that's where we're at. It's getting better, I will say, it's getting a lot better. And I think questions like this from people on podcasts is like exactly why part of this is getting better too, so I appreciate it. It's a definitely a tough question. Like, I know both of us don't have an answer for it, but it's great that you can come up with that so quickly because it's clearly in the forefront of your mind. 
Oh, yeah, all the time. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely is. And while it's at the forefront of your mind, our next question is about blue, blue leadership collaboration. Oh, look so, at you guys. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> Being a mentor with them, <laughs> as well as a geopolitics fellow working with students like us, uh, we just wanted to know what motivates you to engage with students and, you know, young up-and-coming uh, people more broadly. And what do you hope to accomplish in your work in these spaces? So I think it actually goes a lot back to a lot of what I said in my in my last answer, which is, you know, there weren't people like me doing this when I was your age or their age and didn't have a person to look up to that might have looked like me or that even thought to ask, like, how are you doing in this very white male dominated space and so i i hope that you know i'm helping foster the next generation of operatives to look a little differently but also to think a little bit differently and i think you know blue leadership is one avenue for that but also just my time here at gu talking to students in my office hours in particular it's also like i didn't know you could do this in college right like campaign operative as a as a profession and it took me a long time to accept it, and it took my parents a long time to accept it. But I think the realization that students are coming to this with questions about how to get involved much earlier is encouraging to me because it just means like we're not going to have the same cycle of, you know, white guys recruiting white guys or white girls recruiting white girls into this industry. It's going to be a much broader approach, and frankly, it's it's a lot of what I said about the party looking different too. And it is big tent, it is conservative people from West Virginia and it is liberal people from where New York, Massachusetts, whatever, it's all of it. But it can't it can't just be like a monolith. Like we can't just be all white guys running campaigns. And it's definitely important work too because one of the big things we learn by uh, being interviewers for this podcast is that there's no one way into politics. It's definitely a windy road and that can be challenging for some people who are used to thinking about careers as paths or a linear direction. So I can see how it could be very important to show people, here's how we do it, here's how we get into uh, this space. Yeah, and it's it's very, it's very interesting that you say that. There is no one path, and it's not like graduating from college and going to sell insurance and you do X part at the insurance company for a year and then you move up and then you're there for five years. It's You can do a lot of different things and gain a lot of responsibility very quickly but I think that there are barriers to access and entrance here. You have to know what you're doing and know what you're looking for in order to find the job. And if you don't have people looking out for you to help say like, hey, here's an on-ramp, go do this. It's, it's hard to get in and it's sometimes harder to stay in once you're in if you don't have a person helping you along the way. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, you know, looking at this windy road um, in the career of politics, uh, your discussion group for geopolitics this semester was titled Political Science to Political Directing to Political Power, a Practical Approach. So a lot of steps there. Um, this I, theme I is... don't know why I wrote it like that, guys. I'm not going to lie. It has <laughs> a certain cadence to it, it though. It does. And so this theme is definitely apt for Georgetown students, many of whom, Kelvin and I inclusive, uh, study political science and, you know, maybe are hoping to launch a career in politics. So especially for those who did not have the privilege to participate in your geopolitics discussion group this semester, what is one piece of advice you have for students looking to enter into politics? Don't overthink it. Just keep moving. I think political jobs are 
you, you could get one pretty easily if you tried or thought thought really hard about where would I go be a field organizer? Where can I go be a phone banker? These are all like things you can do as a volunteer as well. I think the important thing and something that I've noticed when talking with students in office hours is the um, sort of decision paralysis about where to go from here and trying to identify a very linear path when there's not one. So my advice is like, don't stop moving, just take the next job and figure it out. And I think, you know, people have asked about, about my path and I, I don't think I ever laid one out for myself. It just kind of all happens. And I think campaigns are very squishy. And so that's just kind of the nature of how people get jobs on them is squishy and relationship based and circumstance based and who did you see when you were getting coffee the other day and who said something to your friend over there the other day and it's not like here's my application and my cover letter ma'am like it is a lot different than getting a job in a corporation but don't stop moving you requested the more lighthearted questions and now it's <laughs> it was, finally it was time like 10 minutes ago you guys <laughs> it's finally t- we know how to do our callbacks we never forget So welcome to the lightning round where we ask quick questions and hopefully get very quick answers. Our first question for you is, what is your favorite holiday tradition? Oh, that's a good one. Um, okay. I think it's just decorating the tree. Is that a good one? I don't know. I love doing that and I love wrapping presents. And even if it, I mean, I live by myself, but I still do it. Ending the interview on a more sentimental note. Yeah, we did this in chronological order. (laughs) What has been the best part about being a GU Politics Fellow? And what will you miss the most now that it's almost over? Um, I don't know if this is the best part, but like the thing that I think was honestly the coolest is during Fellows Fest... I was out at the main gate waiting for my Uber and people recognized me. They were like, here's a fellow. And I think I will really miss being being welcomed, right? Like, it's it's awesome. It's awesome to be back on campus. Um, what will I miss the most? Like, I felt famous, you guys. Like, it was awesome. <laughs> like, they were like, can we get a picture? I'm like, yes, of course. Um, what will I miss the most? I actually really enjoyed office hours. I enjoy, it's like, it's like a pop quiz every half hour because you never know what somebody is going to want to come in and talk about. Like clearly it's something I might have a base of knowledge about, but other times like walk away learning things or learning about new websites I should go check out or different ways of thinking about things. So I don't know. Like I'll miss all of it. (laughs) Don't worry. Anytime you're back, you'll definitely be welcome with open arms. People will be asking for photos again. It's really great to find, like, your people. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. It's nice to be back. Back in person, anywhere. Thanks for coming and talking to us, Rebecca. This was really good. Thank you both. This was amazing. I appreciate it. Thank you all so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Flying the Wall, the last of the season. We'd like to thank everyone for an excellent season this semester. It's been great to be back on campus and once again be immersed in the world of politics in person. We hope you all enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, as we always remind you, make sure to follow us on social media at Fly in the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 
And as always, you can email us at our new email, flyinthewall at georgetown.edu. See you next semester for season 11.